Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome with me Mr. Christopher Check. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about the, uh, the, the Punic Wars, uh, which, which take place before the birth of Christ. Why are we talking about ancient history? Um, why are we talking about pre-Christian history? Why are we talking about things that take place before the Incarnation? That's a good question. It's a, maybe, you, maybe you, all of you have answered this for yourselves, but for those of you who haven't, I'm going to answer. And this is why. Because all of human history, prior to the Incarnation, points towards it. And then all of human history after the Incarnation comes forth from it. Comes forth from it. The Incarnation is the central event of human history. There's nothing else like it. God directly, in this way, intervening, in this extraordinary way, intervening in human history. But all things point towards it. And it's appropriate, especially during this season of Advent, when all the world, right, is groaning in anticipation, right, for the, for the Savior to come, for the Incarnation that we talk about these events in history that now that we can understand with the lens of the Incarnation that we can understand them as part of God's providential plan. So that's, the, so that's why tonight and any time Sabatino does a program where he talks about the Greeks, right, or the Romans, or anything in antiquity. Right? This is the reason why. And you should all understand, I know you all do, but I'll just underscore it. America, America's patrimony is the Christian West. It's Europe, or what we used to call, or what they used to call, Christendom, right? The union of church and state in Europe at that moment, okay? And that was brought to this shore in 1492 by Christopher Columbus, right? So that is what America is. That's, that's, or that's what it was. That's certainly what it was. And it's what it very well could be again. But what is that patrimony? It is the union of Greek thought, right? Roman political order or Roman law, if you will, Roman political order, sure, and revelation and revelation, divine revelation. So the Hebrew scriptures, Greek thought, and Roman political order. Those are the things that combine to create Christendom. And of course, they are baptized in the incarnation. Let's start with a story. A nine-year-old boy follows his father to the temple of their terrible god. The father, a nine-year-old boy follow, follows his father to the temple of their terrible god. The father is a great general whose battlefield heroism abroad and principled leadership at home have earned him the adoration of his people and the envy of the Senate. For three decades and its rival, have, for, have battled for control of the island of Sicily, but now his people chafe under the uneasy peace of the vanquished. At the temple, the general renews his hatred of his enemy, and here, before their god, a god who feeds on infants, he passes on this hatred to his son. The boy, whose name is Hannibal, son of Hamilcar Barca, swears an oath 
ever to hate Rome. When Hannibal, whose name means favored by Baal, is 25, he takes up command of the Carthaginian army and he takes up his father's unfinished business. Two years later, he launches what we today know as the Second Punic War. The year is 219 BC. Leading his army across the Pillars of Hercules, what we today call the Straits of Gibraltar. I think we should call them the Pillars of Hercules. That's more romantic. He marches up the east coast of the Iberian Peninsula and he lays siege to the Greek city of Saguntum on Spain's Mediterranean coast. Saguntum is a Roman ally. It is the last Iberian city south of the Ebro River, not under control of Carthage. Hannibal is patient. Eight months later, the city is his. Many of the Greek citizens take their own lives rather than face Carthaginian rule. Rome declares war, Hannibal marches north. His plan is bold. Leaving the sea to Roman control, he will march his army of Numidian and Spanish mercenaries, along with his elephants, overland, over the Alps, and attack the Italian peninsula from the north. Along the way, he will recruit reinforcements from the warrior bands of Celts who roam Gaul. Celts whose own hatred of Rome is fresh, having been driven from the Po Valley by Rome's legions less than a decade before. When spring arrives, he crosses the Ebro River. In order to get his elephants to come across the river, he lures them onto rafts that he's covered with sod. Within weeks, he subdues the country south of the Pyrenees, leaves behind a garrison to secure the vanquished territory. He cashiers any soldier he thinks is not man enough for the march that is to come. Crossing the Pyrenees, he makes for the Rhone River. The Roman consul, Publius Cornelius Scipio, leads his legions in an attempt to cut off Hannibal at Massia, what we today call Marseille. But Scipio is too late. Hannibal has marched north, up through the Rhone River Valley, and it is only now that the Romans realize the Carthaginians' plan for an invasion of Italy from the north. The crossing of the Alps, military history's most famous march, is arduous, not only for the bitter cold, the ice, the snow, but also for the hostile mountain tribes. These take a toll of Hannibal's army, and it is severe. So much so that he arrives in the Po Valley with half of his army, about 20,000 infantry, 6,000 horse, and 40 elephants. He has, however, no less of the iron will that has driven him thus far. If anything, he is more resolved. He recruits Catholic uh, excuse me, Celtic mercenaries and with their aid lures the Roman army commanded by the consul Sempronius into battle at the Trebia River. Outflanking and surrounding the shivering Roman legions, Hannibal's army annihilates the numerically superior force. 30,000 Romans in a day of fighting, are slaughtered. Hannibal turns west and crosses the snowy Apennines and then marches down the west coast of Italy. His stirring speeches and the news of his victories against Rome make it very easy for him to recruit along the way Gauls and other tribesmen aching for revenge on Rome and aching for a peace of Rome's wealth. 
In the spring of the following year, Hannibal wades through the treacherous Arnus marshes, where now it's disease that takes its toll of his army and claims one of Hannibal's eyes. He's lost an eye, but he has placed himself between Rome and her legions. They rush to engage him under Consul Gaius Flaminius, but they are ambushed by Hannibal on the banks of Lake Trasimene. A second bloodbath follows. Another 30,000 legionaries and their consul are slaughtered or driven into the lake where the weight of their armor pulls them down under the surf and they are drowned. Hannibal leads his army south to Apulia, the spur on the Adriatic coast. On the plains of Cannae, August 2, 216 BC, Hannibal clashes with two larger than normal Roman consular armies led by Aemilius Paulus and Terentius Varro. Hannibal's 50,000 soldiers face a Roman force of 100,000, twice the size. And in one of history's great tactical triumphs, Hannibal lures the Roman army into a total envelopment and butchers them. At the end of the day, some 60,000 or 70,000 Romans, including Consul Aemilius Paulus, lay dead on the field. It would not be until the First World War that the world would witness so much carnage in a single day's fighting. And by the way, to bring the brutality of Cannae into better relief, we can recall that the casualties during the First World War were in the Somme, for example, were largely inflicted by artillery or machine gun fire, right? Barbed wire, of course, right? The casualties at Cannae were inflicted in hand-to-hand fighting, a spear to the throat or to the abdomen, a sword hacking off a limb or a head, For every dead soldier on the field at Cannae, there was another soldier who had looked him in the eye before taking his life. Hannibal ad portus, Roman mothers warn their misbehaving children. Hannibal is at the gate. But Rome, she does not blink. Never before nor since, write military historians, Ernest and Trevor Dupay, has a state survived after suffering such a crushing defeat, such crushing defeats in close succession as those of Rome at Trebia, Lake Trasimene, and Cannae. And when the news of Cannae reached Rome, there were a few faint hearts, but as a group, the Romans had but one thought, perseverance to victory. Roman historian Adrian Goldsworthy echoes the dupes of warfare in the ancient world. He writes, a people lost a war as soon as it considered itself to have been beaten, perhaps through the loss of a battle, the fall of an important city, or an attack, even a symbolic one, on crops or cattle. One of Rome's greatest strengths in warfare was her unwillingness to admit defeat, even after she had suffered catastrophe. Goldsworthy and the Dupes are in the company of one of history's great political historians, Niccolo Machiavelli. And in his discourses on Livy, he writes, no ill fortune ever made the Romans abject. Although the defeat of Cannae was most grave for having been the third one, Rome never cowered, but sent out new armies. Rome did not send to Hannibal or Carthage to seek peace, but banishing these thoughts, thought always of continuing the war. The rest of the 
story of the Second Punic War is well known. Perseverance rewarded the Romans who first defeated Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal, on the banks of the Metaris River in northeastern Italy. The trophy of the victory against Hasdrubal was his head, right? Which they then delivered to Hannibal. The final clash came not in Italy, but east of Carthage on the plains of Zama, 2002 BC, 202 BC, where the Romans under Scipio Africanus, son of Publius Scipio, crushed the army of Hannibal. For 16 years, Hannibal had terrorized the Italian peninsula. And for the entire time, the younger Scipio, who has, as a teenager, had survived the clashes at Trebia and Cannae, had studied the great general's methods. While it is so that Carthaginian political will, in the end, failed Hannibal, it is more important to understand why Roman cultural will defeated him. In his masterpiece, The Everlasting Man, G.K. Chesterton calls the Punic Wars the war of the gods and the demons. And if we try to penetrate the depth of Chesterton's insight, we can begin to appreciate the unique stamp the Roman Republic left on history, and not simply on military history or political history, but most important, on salvation history which is the most complete understanding of history that we can have. So our evening's remarks tonight aspire to two purposes. One, to allow you to sail through any cocktail party conversation that you have about the Punic Wars. I know this comes up at a lot of If it doesn't, you're going to the wrong parties. And two, to suggest to you that because you are a citizen of Christendom and Roman Catholic citizens, Roman Catholic citizens at that, that the terrible conflict between Rome and Carthage, this war of gods and demons, is part of your story. It is an essential part of your story and one that you should know and one that you should love. So, the boring stuff first. Let's locate the Punic Wars in history. There are three great wars in antiquity. This confused me all the time when I was a kid, right? And they all begin with P. That's what makes it, <laughs> that's what makes it confusing, right? The Persian Wars are in the first half of the 5th century B.C., Darius I invades Attica. Maybe none of you had this confusion when you were kids, but I'm going to go through this anyway. Darius I invades Attica in 490 BC, reacting to what? Athenian aid to the revolt of the Ionian Greeks. They're repelled at Marathon in 490, the Great Battle of Marathon. Ten years later, Darius's son, Xerxes, sends another army. They invade again. Right? Their, their shafts be night the air, as in the Hasman poem. And the standoff there is where? At the hot gates. The 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, right? And then the great sea battle at Salamis, where the Greeks defeat the Persians. And then Plataea, the land battle. J.F.C. Fuller, who's among the best military historians in the English language, whose three-volume series of military history is very, very good. He calls Salamis and Plataea the, the pillars on which Western civilization was built. And where do we get the story from the Persian Wars? Herodotus. Herodotus. If you don't have Herodotus on your shelf, shame on you, you should. Even just so when people come over, they see it. Right? <laughs> the Peloponnesian Wars, P, also begins with a P, right? The Peloponnesian Wars... This is in the second half of the 5th century BC. The Empire of Athens uh, makes war against the Peloponnesian League of, that's led by who? Sparta, right? And our source for these 
include Thucydides, right, the Peloponnesian Wars, you all read it in college, Aristophanes, and Xenophon. Right? The Athenian expedition to Athens and the subsequent siege from 415 to 413, during which Athens was defeated and her forces were imprisoned in the Latamia of Syracuse, right, the mines of Syracuse, is the beginning of the end of Athens. And then finally, the Punic Wars, tonight's topic, were a series of three wars spanning more than a century, during which Rome and Carthage battled for control of the Mediterranean world. By every measure, the Punic Wars constitute the greatest conflict of antiquity. They rage from 264 to 146. They were fought in Spain, Italy, Sicily, North Africa, Corsica, Sardinia, and of course on all the surrounding water. The size of the battles rival those of, mo of the modern age. In, in fact, if we take the contemporary sources at their word, or even, you know, cum grano salus, as the Romans used to say, with a grain of salt, the first Punic War included the largest sea battle of all time, the battle off of Cape Economus, Economus 256 BC. In 216 BC, the Battle of Cannae during the Second Punic War, which we talked about, witnessed one of the highest casualty counts in a single day fighting. Somewhere between 50 and 70,000 dead. On both sides of the Punic Wars loom towering figures of military history. Hannibal, of course, maybe history's greatest tactician, Hannibal, whose you know, march over the Alps is better remembered than anything else. His great, his great rival, Scipio Africanus, who defeated Hannibal at Zama. And there's Marcellus, Archimedes, with his war engines, right? Regulus, Xanthippus, here on the second, and Cato the Elder. The outcome of the Punic Wars changed the history of the West forever. At the beginning of the war, Rome, at the beginning of the wars, Rome was, a, was merely an Italian power. At the end, she was a, an empire, and a formidable empire. The Punic Wars were the painful political crucible in which the Roman Empire and its army were forged. Carthage, once a great commercial empire, a seagoing empire, the undisputed ruler of the seas, as Polybius puts it, was destroyed. At the start of the Punic Wars, however, neither side was anticipating such a decisive outcome. So let's contrast Rome and Carthage before the Punic Wars. By the way, anybody know the origin of the word Punic? It's the, it's the Latin Punicus for Phoenician, and that comes from uh, a dye, purple, the purple dye, right, that was common to clothing that they wore, right? Carthage was a thriving Phoenician colony when Romulus and Remus were still suckling on the Palatine wolf. Rome was a mere Italian power. Prior to the start of the war, the Roman army had not set foot outside of Italy. She had no naval experience. Rome had no naval experience. The Romans used allies, usually Greeks of southern Sicily, to provide shipping and troop transportation. Rome was a confederacy of Italian peoples controlled by Rome, bordered roughly by the Arno River in the north, an area of about 50,000 square miles, which we call the Agia Romanus, the territory around Rome, was about a fifth. Of a population of about three million Romans and allies, or Sochi, they called them, Sochi, about 10%, according to Livy, were Roman citizens. So most Romans were, were not citizens. The Roman Republic had subdued much of the Italian peninsula, but far from creating an empire, they had set up 
a FEDUS, F-O-E-D-U-S, right? Or a league of self-governing Italian communities. By the way, this is important, right? FEDUS is the origin of the original American political organization, which we call federalism, right? Which no longer exists. Hasn't since, well, Appomattox. <laughs> I know I can say that in this town. These communities or tribes could aspire to certain political privileges and maybe even full citizenship. And some of them, the Latin allies immediately surrounding Rome, were allowed to serve in the army. The Roman army comprised in the main, in the main, unpaid or very, very modestly paid soldiers. Citizen soldiers. Citizen soldiers. Members of the Roman patrician class led lives of simple comfort sustained by their farms. It's this age, by the way, of Rome, of the Roman Republic, that most captured the imagination of the American founders, especially the Virginians, right? Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. They shared this strong belief that the backbone of a civilization, of a free republic, was what? An agrarian patrician class. In contrast, the Greek and Carthaginian upper class led lives of extreme luxury in Syracuse and Carthage itself. Carthage, at the start of the Punic Wars, had long since stopped being a Phoenician colony and was now a vast, wealthy empire made so by Carthage's ex ex uh, aggressive pursuit of commerce. The Carthaginians were the, were, they were the original multinational capitalists, right? An economic that was made possible by the, by the fact that they were the greatest sailors of the day. They built magnificent galleys, um, quinquereens, they were called, right? And they sailed these all over the Mediterranean world doing what? Buying and selling stuff. Their ships sailed along the Atlantic coast as far north as Cornwall, right, for the tin mines. The t uh, and um, I, I have a friend who insists, by the way, that uh, there are Carthaginians who actually made it to North America. We do know, by the way, that Carthaginians made it because we found, I, I mean, archaeologists have found loads of Carthaginian coins in the Azores. So off the coast of Portugal, right, at least a third of the way. So they, they did take these, their vessels out on the, on the open sea. By the way, um, with respect to Cornwall, all of you all should, should know this story. Um, there's a tradition in England that Joseph of Arimathea was a, um, a tin merchant. Uh, and, and in fact, that, that, that song, what's it, they sing it at all Italian, or, uh, English weddings, uh, and did those feet, what's it called? Anyway, uh, and there's, a, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a, a tradition that Joseph of Marathea brought, you know, the boy Jesus on one of his expeditions to Rome uh, with him. Um, but anyway, he did, Joseph of Arimathea did have mines in Cornwall, and then there is the, the, the story of the, of the Glastonbury thorn, some of you may know, uh, after, the res after the resurrection, uh, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Britain to inspect his um, mines, right? And falling asleep, he put his walking staff in the ground. And when he awoke, the, thorn the, 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 the staff had grown into this thorn bush, right? And went on to bloom every May and every December. And then the Glastonbury Abbey was built up around this thorn, which uh, continues miraculously to uh, bear fruit, and they grow new trees from the seed, from the, uh, and the, and from the tree that blooms. Um, Henry VIII uh, destroyed Glastonbury Abbey, and then during the English Civil War, uh, the roundhead troops of the, of the charming fellow Oliver Cromwell uh, cut down the tree, but cuttings of it were saved. And two trees grown from these bloom to this day 
every spring and Christmas. And the Queen of England, who's, you know, well, I, I was going to say a non-believer, but I, I mean, I don't know. But anyway, separated sister and brethren, uh, she goes every day at, 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 when, when, it, when it blooms for, for, for a ceremony. Anyway, so I got off the topic of the Punic Wars there, I'm sorry. But there were tin merchants as far up as England, and, they, and, and the Carthaginians did go up there. They were great. They were great sailors. By the way, Oliver Cromwell would have found a lot to admire in the Carthaginians uh, because <laughs> they were both ruthless people and they were feared for their brutality against conquered peoples. They practiced demonic religious rites, including temple prostitution and the one for which they are most famous, human sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of small babies, right? To their chief god, Baal. And, you know, we see those statues of Baal with the palms open like this and you set the baby in the palm, palms and, the, and then the baby falls in, into the fire. Uh, by the way, this is undisputed, even by apologists for the Carthaginian uh, 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 regime. The archaeological data, something like 20,000 child urns in the Tophet so far is compelling. And also more urns, by the way, found on Sardinia, right? and on Mosia, which is a little island um, off the north coast of Sicily. Right? It, Richard Miles has a new book. Oh, it came about four or five years ago. Carthage must, must, must be destroyed, he writes. The conclusion to be drawn is that the Carthaginians and other Western Phoenicians did sacrifice their own children for the benefit of their families and their communities. The archaeological evidence also shows that the Tophet was not like a, a secret. It wasn't a dark secret, but a symbol of um, prestige. Carthaginian ruthlessness, however, did mean a stable political order run by for many centuries an oligarchy, you know, the rule of the wealthy, comprising a few ruling clans. The Barca clan, from which Hannibal came, was one of these. Cicero even has some words of praise for the Carthaginian political stability. Carthage, you know, much like the present United States, started as a colony that eventually developed into a vast commercial empire in pursuit of trade. Even their agriculture was kind of more like today's Archer Daniels Midland than it was the family farms of the early American Republic. The Carthaginians operated vast farms run by slaves and serfs who were bound to the land. The ruling class comprised city dwellers who were far removed from the fields and the markets from which they derived their wealth. The, the kinds of myths, the central myths that fired the hearts of Romans, the imaginations of Romans, would not have made any sense to the Carthaginians. Like, for example, all of us know the Cincinnatus story, right? The man who puts down his plow and picks up his sword. The idea of a ruler of the state also being a simple farmer, plowing his field, was not part of Carthaginian thought or mythology. Beyond acknowledging their skill as plutocrats and seamen, there's, there's not much to say in defense of the Carthaginians. I don't know how to, it's like, I don't know, Orange County, California, something like that. <laughs> they, 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 they produce no real art, no great literature or poetry, no philosophy. Unlike Rome, their citizens did not serve in the army. It was officered by men of the Carthaginian nobility, but the ranks were filled with mercenaries, Numidians, Berbers. Carthaginian officers had a special incentive to be successful on the battlefield, right? If they failed, they would be crucified. So. But to give Carthage her due, she did produce one of history's great captains, Hannibal Barca. And that's where we began, the Second Punic War. The Third Punic War, compared with the first two, is, you know, it's the icing on the cake. It's just kind of a three-year siege of Carthage, inspired in part by the fiery political rhetoric of who? Cato the Elder, shaking his figs there on the floor of the Senate. Carthage must be destroyed, right? Carthago de lenda est, or ceterum censio Carthaginem furthermore I think Carthage should be destroyed well Carthage was destroyed Rome sacked the city and burned to the ground 
the Third Punic War is famous for the story that afterwards Rome sowed the Carthaginian fields with salt, rendering them infertile. The event does not appear in historical accounts until the 19th century, so it's pretty doubtful. It's not that this didn't happen. Salt was extremely expensive, so this would have been unusual, an unusual use of salt. It's not that this didn't happen. There's actually uh, a case in uh, the Book of Judges, right, where this is done, but it's doubtful that the Romans did this. The Roman treatment of Carthage after the end of the Third Punic War is morally problematic. It smacks of unconditional surrender, which is a morally untenable position. But the Romans were pagans, better than the rest, but pagans nonetheless. And that's, that's the end of the story. So let's go back to the beginning. What about the First Punic War? We started with the war with Handel. That's the Second Punic War. The third was this quick siege. So what about the first? So briefly, the First Punic War was fought over Sicily. The Romans entered the war reluctantly and only after a deadlocked Senate put the vote to the popular assembly. On the side, the Romans come in on the side of a southern Italian tribe called the Mamertines, right, who are at war with Carthage over Messana, what we call Messina, right, where the toe meets Sicily there. The Mamertine claim on Messana was doubtful, probably non-existent, but Rome saw an alliance with them as a chance to check Carthaginian growth in Sicily. Today we'd call this preemptive war, right? So if you're for that, then you'll side with the Romans. If you're not, then you have to acknowledge that the Romans weren't bound by the same moral codes that we were. The war raged for 23 years. It was largely a naval conflict. There are a lot of stories to remember from the First Punic War, but we're just trying to do the cocktail version tonight, so I'm going to give you two. The first pertains to the beginning of Rome's development as a sea power, okay? The Romans were not seamen, in contrast to the Carthaginians, and they jobbed this duty out to people who were better at it, usually Greeks. But during the First Punic War, they realized that even with their Greek allies, they were, not a they were no match for the Carthaginians at sea. So they approached the problem with the logic that played to their strength, which was what? Infantry. They were infantrymen. The stories in Livy comes to us in Livy. They constructed ships, they captured Carthaginian ships and constructed new ones using wrecks as models. And they made copies of these Carthaginian ships to replace theirs, which were a little bit slower. But just because they had equal ships didn't mean now they were going to be e equal at sea. So they devised a corvus, right, or beak, or raven. There's different translations. And this device was a long plank at the end, at the bow of the ship, with a, on, mounted on a pivot with a spike at the end of the plank. And the idea is you would pull the galley up against the enemy galley, you'd sw swing down this giant plank, in, in, and then this beak, this steel or iron beak would smash in, in, into, the, into the enemy ship, and then now you have a bridge over which you can board. And, uh, and, and, and there, 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 there's the Corvus in action. That gives you some sense of, of how that, that would have worked. Um, you know, the Roman infantry, would have been very much at home at the, at, at the Battle of Lepanto. The only difference, of course, is what? Gunpowder, right? right? They had no gunpowder. Ernest and Trevor Dupay called the Corvus one of the very first secret weapons. Secret weapons. For the duration of the First Punic War, the Carthaginians would win only one major sea battle. The Corvus served its purpose, not only in wresting control of the sea from Carthage, but also in buying Rome the time to become better sailors, right? After that, they abandoned the thing, probably because it makes a ship pretty unstable. So it did its job. By the way, these guys aren't really um, infantrymen. They're what? Marines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, by the way, in, in the Punic War, we have all, in, during the siege of Sicily, we have all of these um, amazing uh, machines that Archimedes designed. So this is, this is a picture of one right here. And the idea was that as the ships would come up against the city, anybody ever been to Syracuse? You can still see those walls there. And, uh, and, 
uh, so the ships would come up and attempt to unload, and then they would drop this hook and get it up underneath the galley and then you know, pull back on the pulley. Of course, Archimedes was a master of pulleys, and then you know, topple, topple the ship over. Yeah, here's another image of what that might, what that might have looked like there. Um, Archimedes' engine. Archimedes died in the, in the siege of Sicily. It was, it was sad. It was sad. The second or third, you should remember Archimedes. The third thing to remember of the First Punic War is the story of Regulus. Regulus. And boys especially should know the, this story. It's in Livy. Horace also mentions Regulus in one of his odes. Regulus is a Roman consul. And he's commanding his army and leading them to one victory after another during the First Punic War. On campaign, he receives correspondence from his wife. He gets a letter from his wife that the men that he had hired to cultivate their little farm have abandoned it. So fearful that his family will perish, he sends correspondence to the Roman Senate asking to be replaced. But he's been so successful on the battlefield that the Roman Senate does not want to relieve him. They inform Regulus that the Senate will see to it that his farm and his family are looked after and Regulus continues the war at last taking the fight to the shores of Carthage. But at the Battle of Tunis, Regulus is captured. He's defeated by a Spartan mercenary, a man named Xanthippus. Anyway, Regulus is taken prisoner and for six years Regulus sits in his cell in the city of his enemy until the Carthaginians have grown weary of the war that they're not winning and they approach Regulus with a deal and they say to him that they will give him his freedom if he will go back to the Roman Senate and broker a peace or failing a peace at least some kind of exchange of prisoners. The Carthaginians require Regulus to swear an oath that if they let him go, that he'll do, that he will return to, if, that if his mission fails, that he'll return to Carthage. So Regulus goes and he appears before the Roman Senate. But far from negotiating on behalf of the Carthaginians, what does he tell his fellow Romans? He says, the war has exhausted Carthage and she's near surrendering. And he insists that the Romans make no exchange of prisoners and continue to keep putting armies in the field. Knowing that Regulus will face certain death if he goes back to Carthage, his fellow senators implore him to stay in Rome. But Regulus reminds his fellow senators that a Roman is worth nothing if not his word. He holds true to his oath. He dispassionately bids his wife and children goodbye. And when he returns to Carthage, he's placed in a barrel into which his torturers drive long spikes until he is dead. St. Augustine in the City of God mentions Regulus and he holds him up as an example of one whose courage rose superior to the dreadful fate at the hands of his fiercest enemies. And he suggests the theme of our conversation tonight that Regulus foreshadows the Christian martyrs because he died for something that was greater than he was. If St. Augustine finds a forecast of Christian fortitude in the Regulus story, it is, G.K. Chesterton would argue, not an accident. The Regulus story, like the Cincinnati story or the Horatius at the bridge story fired the hearts of Romans for centuries to come even after Rome had been irreversibly down the path of empire. To be sure, Livy is writing in the age of Augustus and he's appealing to his fellow Romans to recall these great stories of the Roman Republic. And Chesterton and his countryman, Rudyard Kipling, understood that these stories were morality tales that were like the Latin language in which they were originally written, an essential part of the legacy of the West. I strongly encourage you to read, it, it, it'll take you five minutes, the, Kip, the Kipling story, Regulus, published about the same time as Chesterton's Orthodoxy. It takes place at an English boarding school 
and it explores the themes as classical versus scientific education, the Latin language, honor, and what it means to be a citizen of the West. Which takes us to the second purpose of these remarks, our duty to understand and appreciate Christendom's pagan origins. We use the word pagan today to describe the degeneracy into which post-Christian America has sunk, but Chesterton had a, a profound appreciation for the character of pagan Romans. To him, they were the good pagans fighting to prepare the way for the incarnation. There is a section of modern youth, Chesterton writes, which certainly strikes its elders as hard and skeptical and selfish. And of these, it is customary to say that they are pagans. It suddenly flashed across me yesterday that, of course, what is the matter with them is that they have lost their paganism. There is no question at all of their losing their Christianity, but the reason why they all look as miserable as monkeys is in this tragic and deplorable disaster that they have all lost their paganism. In the pagan Romans and in the pagan Greeks as well, what is it that Chesterton admires? Freedom. Political freedom to be sure, but more than that, moral freedom or what you and I would call free will, which is really our capacity to do good for good reasons. All of us recall from high school the story of the Roman statesman Cincinnatus who put down his plow and picked up his sword, but then surrendered his authority as dictator when the threat of the Aquians had passed and returned to his plow. The army that brought down Carthage was made up of just such men. It was manned not by professional soldiers, but by ordinary citizens for whom military service was an interruption of their daily lives. Simply put, citizens who had the financial wherewithal to equip themselves for battle, no small expense, and support themselves on campaign. Service in the Roman army was esteemed by its citizens as a duty to the Republic. And Rome preserved this model long after its neighbors and rivals had raised professional armies. There's no reason to suppose that man for man, Romans were better fighters than their Latin neighbors. Why then did they emerge victorious so often? The answer lies in the quality of the hearts of the men who serve, the principles that motivated their service and their deep level of commitment to these principles. A man with the means to outfit himself for battle was a certain kind of man. He was a land-owning farmer with property that generated this income to equip himself and sustain himself as a soldier. A good percentage of Rome's citizens were men of this class. Their property represented their stake a significant one in the well-being, in the prosperity and the security of the Republic. It's a grave error for us to understand this stake as exclusively or even largely financial. Romans didn't measure the health of their Republic in terms of profit. Their devotion to the Republic is demonstrated by the citizen's willingness to submit himself to the severe discipline of military life. Historian Effie Adcock writes, a Roman was half a soldier from the start and he could endure discipline that soon produced the other half. The free choice of the Roman soldier to serve the army of the Republic stands in sharp contrast to the motives of the mercenary forces of Carthage, men who killed for booty. Not surprisingly, they served a state that worshipped not only Baal, the baby killer, but Mammon as well. Dark with all the riddles of Asia, writes Chesterton, and trailing all the tribes and dependencies of imperialism came Carthage riding on the sea, an outpost or settlement of the energy and expansion of the great commercial cities of Tyre and Sidon with a prodigious talent for trade, they were members of a mature and polished civilization, abounding in refinements and luxuries. They were probably more civilized than the Romans, and yet 
Chesterton continues, these highly civilized people really met together to invoke the blessing of heaven on their empire by throwing thousands of their infants into a large furnace. This diabolical religious rite reveals the one word with which we might describe Carthage. If Rome was the embodiment of freedom, Carthage was the embodiment of fate. All of the great battles of Christendom, 1492 in Granada, 1571 at Lepanto, 1683 at Vienna, these are often cast as conflagrations in the conflict between Christianity and Islam. And they are, but there's something even deeper than that. They are conflicts between freedom and fate, free will and the arbitrary will of a capricious God. Call him Allah or Baal. Mahound in Chesterton's epic poem, Lepanto, identifies the new crusader, Don John of Austria, as he who saith not kismet, he who knows not fate. And for the same reason, Chesterton explains the Calvinists who dreadeth Christ with a newer face of doom do not show up for the battle. If we can understand these great conflicts of the West as fought between free will and fate, the dark riddle of Asia, then we have no difficulty placing the great conflicts of the pagan world in this context. Free Athenians repelling the servile Persians at Marathon and Salamis. Free Romans turning back the moral tyranny of Carthage in the Punic Wars. To no Roman was the Punic War fought for commercial interest. As Chesterton says, there is something nearer to men than livelihood, and that is life. Patriots don't face death for profit. Does anybody in the world believe, asked Chesterton, that a soldier says, my leg is nearly dropping off, but I shall, shall go on till it drops off, for after all, I shall enjoy all the advantages of my government owning a warm water port in the Gulf of Finland. Can anyone suppose that a clerk turned conscript says, if I am gassed, I shall probably die in torments, but it is a comfort to reflect that should I ever decide to become a pearl diver in the South Seas, that that career is now open to me and my countrymen. No citizen of Rome raised his shield and grasped his short sword to face defeat after horrible defeats against Baal's magician. This was no mercantile rivalry, declares Chesterton, that filled the Roman imagination with such hideous omens of nature herself becoming unnatural. Readings of history that find men's motives in profit are as boring and as false as the Marxist version that gives us all of history as one giant class struggle. The Punic Wars were neither. They were the war of the gods and the demons. That is, a war between two ways of life, one good and free and one wicked and faithful. Indeed, the Punic Wars were a supernatural struggle with a supernatural outcome. For Providence ordered that the baby killers in Carthage had to be vanquished so that the world could be made safe for the divine baby. And the Roman Republic was God's instrument to bring about that Pax Romana fulfilled in Emperor Augustus whose census was necessary to fulfill the prophecy. And make no mistake about this, when you hear this reading, this is the real purpose for the census, to bring about the Incarnation. It is no accident that the ultimate outcome of the Punic Wars is proclaimed at midnight mass each Christmas. 
in the 1032nd year from David's being anointed king in the 65th week, according to the prophecy of Daniel, in the 194th Olympiad, the 752nd year from the foundation of the city of Rome, the 42nd year of the reign of Octavian Augustus, the whole world being at peace. In the sixth age of the world, Jesus Christ, the eternal God and Son of the Eternal Father, desiring to sanctify the world by His most merciful coming, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, and nine months having passed since His conception, was born in Bethlehem of Judea of the Virgin Mary, being made flesh. We began this story with Hannibal threatening the city of Rome. And we'll close tonight by saying that the story of Rome and the story of salvation cannot be separated. And this includes the story of pagan Rome. Nobody understands the romance of Rome, Chesterton writes, and why she rose to a leadership that seemed fundamentally natural, who does not keep in mind the agony of horror and humiliation through which she had continued to testify to the sanity that is the soul of Europe. She came to stand alone in the midst of an empire because she had once stood alone in the midst of ruin. It is not for us to guess in what manner or moment the mercy of God might in any case have rescued the world, but it is certain that the struggle which established Christendom would have been very different if there had been an empire of Carthage instead of an empire of Rome. We have to thank the patience of the Punic Wars if in after ages divine things descended at least upon human things and not inhuman. Europe evolved into its own vices and its own impotence but the worst into which it evolved was not like what it escaped. Can any man in his senses compare the great wooden doll, Chesterton asks, referring to the Roman household gods, whom the children expected to eat a little bit of the dinner with the great idol who would have been expected to eat the children. That is the measure of how far the world had gone astray compared with how far it might have gone astray. If the Romans were ruthless, it was in a true sense to an enemy and certainly not merely a rival. They remembered not trade routes and regulations, but the faces of sneering men and the hated, hateful soul of Carthage. And we owe them something if we never needed to cut down the groves of Venus exactly as men cut down the groves of Baal. We owe it to their harshness in part that our thoughts of our human past are not wholly harsh. If the passage from heathenry to Christianity was a bridge as well as a breach, we owe it to those who keep that heathenry human if after all these ages we are in some sense at peace with paganism and can think more kindly of our fathers, it is well to remember the things that were and the things that might have been. For this reason alone, we can take lightly the load of antiquity and need not shudder at a nymph on a fountain or a cupid on a valentine. My friends, when you listen to the Roman martyrology at Midnight Mass this year. Reflect on that clause when all the world was at peace. And during this holy season of Advent, when all the world groans in anticipation of the Incarnation, think back on the men who lived and died in that very time and give thanks to God for the men who gave their lives at Cannae or prevailed 
at Zama. Their shortcomings are easy for us who have the benefit of revelation to find fault with, yet certain it was that they made the world ready to be redeemed. Yeah, I missed the talk on um, the time of incarnation this past Sunday, but based on your talk, I got the impression that this was leading into the incarnation. Could you kind of amplify on it a little bit, please? Um, okay, well, so it, it, were, you at the, were you here for the beginning of my remarks? Uh, yes. Okay, and, well, I, I mean, all I can do is restate what I said. The, the proper understanding, the, the best understanding of human history that we should aspire to is through the lens of the Incarnation. Because this is the moment when God intervenes in human history. Right? This is God touching human history. So, uh, I argue that all things before the Incarnation tend toward it, and then all things after come from it. And to illustrate that point, I just use this occasion of the Punic Wars, this conflict between Carthage, um, the demon worshippers, uh, versus the little Roman Republic. Rome wins, and as a consequence, the world is at peace. And it is this peace that is now the fertile ground into which uh, this moment, the Incarnation, you know, can, can take place. But there are other, you know, I know I did one for Sabatino a few years ago on Alexander the Great. We did one. Alexander the Great is another example of this thing that I'm arguing. Um, if Alexander the Great had not gone up over Asia Minor and then into Asia, but especially in that area that we now call the Levant, um, and brought with him what? The Greek language and Greek, and then... Greek language and, and, and Greek thought in his trail, right? Then all of, uh, well, how can I put it? Well, you can't read the Gospel of John unless you have some sense of Greek thought. That whole idea, logos, is a Greek idea. That's a, that's a Greek idea. So, uh, so, so Alexander the Great, he doesn't know he's doing this, um, but he, 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 by virtue of his conquests, make fertile that region so that when St. Paul is there 300 years later, there's a common understanding of thought in which, in, in which he can speak. So in the case of the Punic Wars, we have the achievement of a political peace. In the case of the story of Alexander the Great, we have the spreading of a, of a way of understanding the world. And, and these are just two examples of how events in, in history make, make the world ready for the Incarnation. Chris, can I just add something to that? Just because it has to do with the... With, with, well, I don't know about that, but the, the reason why during this time we're always looking at the ancient world, ancient philosophy, uh, Jewish thought, and ancient history is because when the fall took place, God did not step away and say, well, I've been outdone. And therefore, uh, uh, thousands of years later, he gives us the band-aid of Jesus Christ. No, he's constantly working with us, calling us home to him. So history is the story of his working among men. Philosophy is the story of man grappling with his relationship with God and God answering that, that seeking which is in man's heart. And so when we look at the ancient world, it, it, we make a big mistake, I think, in the church today when we, when we dislocate Christianity from its context. And its context is a context of preparation by which God brought about that unique moment in the fullness of time, as we spoke about on Sunday. In the fullness of time. What is St. Paul talking about? He's saying that all of these things were leading up to this moment of the Incarnation. So how critical it is that we're studying these things at the Institute and in our lives to be able to see Christ 
as he is. Not from the vantage point 2,000 years later, but from the vantage point of the Pharisees standing on the Jordan River with John the Baptist. To be able to see properly in his proper context what God has done to prepare the world for that fullness of time. This is the first time I think I've seen this, Sabatino. This is magnificent. But, but this is significant, this map that uh, Sabatino is using for now his backdrop for Institute of Catholic Culture. Because, of course, this is where the story takes place. It, it, it happens in a real place at a real moment in, in human history. In all of these places, Antioch and Alexandria, of course, the philosophical battles that are going on, uh, but, or, or, or conversations that are going on among the Ephesus, of course, all of these things. And all of this world, we tend to think of the Mediterranean, Brendan McGuire makes this point all the time, we tend to think of the Mediterranean as this kind of divide between the Islamic East and the Christian West, but that wasn't the understanding of the early or even the medieval Christian, right? He understood this thing as a whole, that, that, that Mediterranean world, right? Philosophy starts in Antioch and Alexandria. Chris, it was just such an excellent question. I think we're just going to finish with that. It was a, it's a great point to conclude the evening. So, yeah, thank you very much for coming this evening. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.